to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1865, speaking of emancipation, Abraham Lincoln explained that it was not his achievement, he was only the instrument. The logic and moral power of garrison and the anti-slavery people of the country and the army, Lincoln said, have done it all. We've discussed armies many times in Civil War Talk Radio, but what about garrison and the anti-slavery people of the country? The story of their decades-long struggle is the subject of the new book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. And its author, Professor Manisha Sinha, will tell us about it tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, part of the University of North Carolina system, the part that's located in Greenville, North Carolina, not South Carolina. But I'm not speaking for the government of North Carolina or its university system or its branch here in Greenville or the Brewster Building or anybody else, just myself. And my guest, as always, will do the same. We just speak for ourselves here. And legal duties accomplished. It is good to be back with the second show of the new season. We, since we talked last week, uh, hurricane or tropical storm Hermine came through Greenville, left a lot of water here. It wasn't too bad, didn't uh, cause any major flooding. I hope wherever you are listening, you were okay, haven't suffered from any weather related trauma in the last week or any time. In other news around Greenville, the university has been trying since I've been here, which is since 2003, to get itself out of a small regional sports affiliation and into one of the major national 
conferences. We almost achieved that. We just got into the Big East at the moment. It collapsed and turned into the American Athletic Conference. And we were one of the league, one of the universities being considered to join the Big 12. Found out last week we're not on the short list. And the football team took out its ire on hapless opponent Western Carolina this past weekend in the opening game and beat the stuffing out of them. So that that made everything okay uh, with a big pirate victory. My alma mater, the Michigan Wolverines, also won their game. I think it was 630-3 to was the final score, which is the way it was when I was in college back in the 1970s in the Bo Schembechler era. You expected a 60-point win each week until you played Ohio State, and then you had a real game on your hands. And uh, I always thought that was good for the conference, a big two, little eight era was was a good one uh, and i'm sure ohio state felt the same way the other eight not so happy about it but now we've got parity anyway it's good to see the the old days coming back u of m and ohio state both winning by enormous margins so they can get ready to play each other in a few months well enjoying it all this week we'll see what happens in the week ahead we're enjoying the new year here at ecu we have a new chancellor i mentioned to you last week everyone's curious to see how he'll do his opening statement at convocation was encouraging in that he talked about raising our institutional profile, which, unless you listen to Civil War Talk Radio, you may not have heard of East Carolina University. So uh, so I'm all for raising the profile and other good things, raising research money and so on. The one point he made that mystified everybody was he urged all of us faculty to tell our students to be civil and polite when they protest. And we all looked at each other because there has not been any protest on campus uh, appreciably in the last 10 years, uh, a little bit here and there. But, but we thought, does the chancellor think this is Berkeley of, of the East? Uh, he's, that's not a problem he's going to have to worry about, at least uh, not if the past is any guide. But we'll see what happens there. And speaking of students, uh, Greetings to everybody in History 3225 who might be listening. If you're listening in the hope of extra credit, welcome. Uh, I'll mention something in the second segment of the show about how you can get that in class tomorrow. Uh, in the meantime, I hope you enjoy listening to, to what you'll hear this evening. And hope everybody will enjoy listening to future shows. We have excellent uh, programs lined up in the weeks ahead. Next week's guest Stephen Davis is the author of A Long and Bloody Task, The Atlanta Campaign, from Dalton through Kennesaw to the Chattahoochee uh, in, 19, in 1864. On the 21st of September, uh, Lorian Foote, author of The Gentleman and the Roughs, Violence, Honor, and Manhood in the Union Army, a book I've been meaning to read for some time. Looking forward to that. On the 28th, uh, from the world of public history, Kathy Wright, curator at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, the former Museum of the Confederacy, will be with us. And on October 5th, we welcome back an old friend, a repeat guest on the show, Mark Dunkleman from Rhode Island, uh, with Patrick Henry Jones, Irish-American, Civil War general, and Gilded Age politician. And we'll just give you one more. There's, there's a whole bunch listed on the website. But the next guest will be Deborah Redden Van Tull. And I'll have to find out how to say that last name, T-U-Y-L-L. Uh, she's written a book called The Confederate Press in the Crucible of the American Civil War. So lots of interesting things coming up. As always, you can 
buy these books by going to the Civil War Talk Radio website. Click on the uh, book logos uh, or click on the Amazon logo and buy your books then. And that click-through supports the website, which Mark Gaffney keeps intact. He also manages the Facebook page where you find out who's going to be on the show next. And finally, he makes sure that the PayPal donation button is in good working order on the the, uh, the, the website, that's impedimentsofwar.org, where you can donate to Civil War Talk Radio at AOL.com. This donation gets you no tax benefit. There is no oath registered in heaven, as Lincoln put it, that requires you to give money to the show, but it does help defray the website expenses and pay for books if a publisher is too cheap to send me a review copy. Uh, and I have to go out and buy it myself. And if there's money left left over, as I promised last week, I'll use it to remodel my kitchen in the year ahead. Uh, so far, we have enough for half of a tablecloth, so we're looking for, for some increase on that front. Well, let's talk Civil War, get to the show. Our guest tonight, uh, Professor Manisha Sinha, has written a large and impressive and very readable book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Uh, Manisha, are you there? And we'll check again. Microphone open. Um, oh, I'm right there. here. Hello, Jerry. There. Ah, hello. Good, good to hear from you. Now we're all set. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It, it's, it's, it was, uh, I think we met last uh, summer at the, uh, the Conference of Civil, Civil War Historian Society in, in Chattanooga, and one of the things I always enjoy about events like that is being able to talk to people who've written interesting things that I otherwise might or might not have come across, and uh, being able to uh, arrange for them to, to come and, and tell us about what they've done. And, and this was a classic case of that, a really uh, interesting piece of work. But let me start by asking you a little bit about yourself, since we only got to talk a little bit last June. Uh, starting with the question I ask almost everybody, what, what got you interested in the topic of the Civil War, or in this case, uh, the precursor to the Civil War, the abolitionist cause? Well, um, you know, I was born in India, and um, I got interested in American history, um, mainly because I grew up in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, and I think um, people everywhere around the world were interested in looking at the issue of race and citizenship in the United States. Um, And from there, I simply worked my way back to... Um, the period of slavery, abolition, and civil war. Um, my first book was on the politics of secession um, and pro-slavery ideology in antebellum South Carolina. Um, and this time I decided to write about people who were on the other side of that divide, uh, and that was the abolitionists. And that's how I came to write this book. So growing up in India, how how prevalent is interest or knowledge in the American Civil War, would you say? You know, my father is a military historian, and he can probably plot the battles of the Civil War better than I can. <laughs> uh, but, um, so, you know, I grew up in a family of historians, and uh, um, I think... M- Part of my interest in Civil War military history certainly uh, comes from my father, who was an 
officer in the British Indian Army and then in the Indian Army after independence. Um, but my interest in American history um, really grew when I was in college and I took my first course in American history and got very interested in um, in slavery, in issues of race. Um, and, you know, when you, when you think about the origins of um, many of um, the problems that we talk about today, you know, you really do have to go back to the time of slavery. Uh, and I think I worked my way back to it uh, in graduate school. And uh, where did you go to graduate school? So I, I got my master's from um, the State University of New York at Stony Brook, but within a year I transferred to Columbia University to work with uh, Eric Foner and Barbara Fields, uh, mainly because uh, most of the historians in uh, Stony Brook taught social history, and I was very interested in um, politics and ideology, you know, and, and looking at the sectional divide over slavery and at the war itself. Um, and so, um, you know, after picking up my master's from there, I I applied to Columbia University and, and got in and, and then got, you know, spent most of my graduate uh, career there and got my PhD there. Excellent. Well, this, um, in terms of, of historiography on this topic, one of the threads that I noticed running through the book is references to the fact that historians have not addressed a lot of the things you talk about or have have overlooked aspects of the abolitionist cause uh, if to the extent our people have, have read about abolitionists uh, people listening to the show uh, people taking the class and uh, anyone familiar with the story and outline there's almost a caricature view the abolitionists are a tiny minority of disgruntled mm-hmm. people who cause more trouble than they accomplish good and uh, then 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 the war comes and we don't hear from them and that that's sort of the whole story mm-hmm. this this book seems to to uh, overturn that in, in lots of ways can you talk about that that sense that this is this is how this revises the the historiography on abolitionism uh, exactly. That's that's a great question. You know, I like the fact that you began the show with quoting Lincoln saying that, uh, you know, acknowledging, I should say, um, the role of the abolitionists um, in the coming of emancipation during the war, uh, because these were people who had, of course, agitated uh, for an end to slavery for a very long time, uh, you know, long before the booming of the guns. Um, and I guess I was troubled, as you you know put it, um, at the way abolitionists tended to be looked at in in, in mainstream historiography. I mean, if you look at older uh, sort of understandings of the Civil War, older uh, interpretations of the war, um, a lot of uh, historians, especially the so-called revisionist school, uh, blamed. Um, you know, fanatics in the North and the South, secessionists in the South and abolitionists in the North for causing what they saw as a needless war. And um, that caricature of abolitionists as extremists, as fanatics who did not do anything constructive, I think lingers on in, in, in historiography. Um, and even though a lot of new work has been done 
on the abolition movement and various segments of it, you know, women in the movement, African Americans in the movement, it has remained rather scattered. Um, and so the, all the work that has been done since the 1960s, let's say, on the abolition movement, um, we, we don't have a new synthesis of this movement. We don't have a new understanding of the movement. And uh, I guess when I started writing this book, uh, I wanted to do that. I wanted to write a movement history, you know, not, uh, you know, isolated biographies or... Um, uh, looking at particular segments or part of the movement, like the Garrisonians or the Evangelicals or the political abolitionists. Um, I really wanted to write uh, a big movement history. And, you know, I probably took on more than I could. <laughs> so, because as you, as you see, it ended up being a, a rather large book. But I think a book that was needed in sort of truly appreciating um, the role of abolitionists as, you know, I call them American democracy's unsung heroes. Um, and in, in writing that history, I wanted to make sure that I not only integrated a lot of the new histories of African Americans and women uh, into the, into the uh, book, but also develop a sort of a new concerted understanding of the movement. Um, and, and so that's, that's really why I, you know, undertook this. And I've written it in a way that it is accessible to a broader reading public. Uh, because even in terms of our lay understanding of the abolitionists, at least in the North, they are seen as, as, as you know, somewhat heroic figures. But, but it's a very sort of uh, bland celebration of the abolitionists without really understanding um, uh, the ideas that motivated them, um, the, the challenges that they faced, uh, and the ways in which they tried to sort of move the pendulum of history. So it was you know, a number of things that I, I wanted to address in the book, and hopefully that has come through. I think it very much does. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk more. Our guest tonight, Manisha Sinha, author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Manisha Sinha, author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. It is a... Uh, synthesis of the the entire abolition movement going back to pre-revolutionary days extending through the uh, the the era of the early national period into the great wave of abolition beginning in the 1830s and uh, up to the Civil War if you're uh, Listening from History 3225, I said I would tell you something, and I'm going to pick a random figure from the uh, illustrations in the center of the book. Uh, Let us take here Charles Lennox Remond. Uh, Bring that name on a piece of paper to class tomorrow, and I'll know you were listening. Extra credit for all. So, uh, Benicia, at the end of our first segment, you were talking about your motivation for writing this as the attempt to... uh, now create this this large synthesis of all the recent work uh, that has been done on abolitionists and different aspects of the movement. And really, I, I can't imagine uh, how you would have a American history seminar for graduate students in the future without assigning this, because it really does bring together all these these aspects. Uh, one of them, for example, uh, speaking of the trajectory of abolitionism in American history, there's a, a wave of it. Uh, it becomes a, a topic of discussion, obviously, among the founding fathers when they're mm-hmm. discussing the Constitution. And then it, it falls off the radar screen until uh, David Walker and William Lloyd Garrison come back in the 18, early 1830s. And you argue uh, in this book, among many other things, that, that historians have overlooked a, a powerful, consistent current of abolition through that middle period. Mm-hmm. Where did you find that? Well, um, you know, as I was researching um, the book, uh, I discovered that uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about the first wave of abolitionists um, that you rightly said, you know, sort of uh, was at its peak during the revolutionary era. Uh, and even during uh, the, sort of, uh, the early national period, after the Constitution is ratified and after... Um, at least the politicians think that there is some sort of agreement and compromises reached over the issue of slavery. You know, the abolition movement did not just disappear. And, in fact, they are fairly active in, in sending petitions to Congress, uh, both African Americans but also Quaker-dominated state societies like the Pennsylvania Abolition Society or the New York Manumission Society, um, and they continue to fight for black freedom, and they try to uh, challenge the new federal fugitive slave law at, at various points. 
So uh, I, I thought it was an ongoing story um, and that historians had missed that because normally when they thought about the abolitionist movement, they immediately thought of the, the antebellum era, the period yes. before the Civil War. Um, you know, as you said, people who were immediatists like Garrison, etc. But I think it was really important for me to discover this prehistory, um, this sort of first wave of abolition um, in the revolutionary era where Quakers were dominant and free blacks uh, were also extremely um, uh, influential. Uh, and I'm a 19th century historian, so for me that was a steep learning curve to sort of uh. Uh, not just teach this period, but actually research it. Um, and, and I found all this material in what I call the neglected period of anti-slavery. In fact, the title of that chapter comes from uh, a very early forgotten book uh, on this period, um, uh, of uh, of anti-slavery activism, uh, and this is the time you know that you have the Missouri crisis, etc. And again, abolitionists are fairly active uh, in that period. And we normally think of you know the controversy over the entrance of Missouri as a slave state as as a congressional affair. We don't mm-hmm. normally think of of abolitionists and and the work that they are doing in order to spread the anti-slavery message um, all through the country at that point. So I, I decided that, that that period needed a chapter, <laughs> uh, and I needed to uh, bring to light some of these, um, these figures whom we normally don't pay that much attention to, um, you know, people like Benjamin Lundy, who is really the missing link between mm-hmm. the sort of early Quaker activism and the Garrisonians. Now, in that era, when people do think about anti-slavery efforts, the, what comes to mind is the American Colonization Society from 1816 and the movement to, uh, to create a colony for freed slaves or, or free blacks, for that matter, uh, from the United States. And one of the themes, again, that runs throughout the entire book is the conflict between colonizationists and abolitionists. Uh, in fact, I'll put it as a three three way conflict. You have colonizationists who, who say they oppose slavery, but they they then want to to remove all uh, people of color from the country. Then you have abolitionists who who simply oppose slavery. And then you have emigrationists mm-hmm. who also oppose slavery, but are in favor of former slaves leaving the country willingly. And it, it's three different. Uh, sometimes there's a lot of conflict among these groups, even though they all, in one way or another, oppose slavery. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. I mean, colonization was an old idea, and, you know, um, among the founding fathers, of course, Jefferson was known uh, as an advocate of colonization. He, he thought that would be the way to get rid of both slavery and black people. Uh, and most abolitionists, even some of the early abolitionists, um, involved with the American Convention of Abolition Societies opposed that program because they noted that that African Americans were not very enamored of the colonization program, which really was a program to uh, send free blacks back to Africa. Um, so the idea was that, uh, you know, the people who'd be left behind, uh, most of the whites would be free and most of the enslaved would be black. Uh, so abolitionists, uh, who, especially those who visualized African Americans uh, as future citizens of the republic, 
um, opposed colonization. Uh, and African Americans themselves, when the American Colonization Society is founded in 1816, 1817, uh, they become vociferous critics of the society, uh, saying that they would not leave the country that they have watered with their blood and tears, you know, just to paraphrase one of those protests. Um, and uh, they saw it as a trick, um, again, to... to um, um, to sort of shore up the racial logic behind slavery uh, in the United States. Now, most white abolitionists who listen to African Americans, like Lundy, uh, like Garrison, uh, opposed colonization. But Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, there was also a stream within the abolition movement um, that was for immigration, immigration of black people outside this country, so opposition to colonization never meant accepting second-class citizenship here. Uh, you know, many African Americans fought for citizenship rights within the United States, not just an end to slavery. They were fighting for black equality. Um, and some of them even proposed plans to immigrate outside the United States. And when they did so, there were a few who looked to Africa, like the colonizationists, but most of them tended to look at um, other countries like Canada or Haiti. And what I found was interesting that uh, people like Garrison, staunch abolitionists, uh, you know, they opposed the colonization movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were not very critical of these immigrationist movements. Not until the 1850s when, you know, some of the immigrationists start um, forming links with some anti-slavery colonizationists do these lines get a little, you know, blurred. Before that, you can really see uh, an immigrationist current, especially amongst black abolitionists, um, but also one that is very strongly critical uh, of the colonization movement, um, mainly because most of the colonizationists tend to berate free blacks, see them as, you know, criminals, as, as pests, and that's the way they talk. Um, they, they see it as a way to get rid of what they see as a cancer on, in the body politic. And, and of course, uh, most African Americans do not react very well to this kind of language that is being used against them. Um, so that there is a difference, I think, between independent, uh, Im- led immigration movements amongst African Americans and the, the colonization society, which consisted mainly of, um, you know, clergymen, um, slaveholders from the border south states of Virginia, Maryland, uh, Delaware. Um, and um, there, there is a difference between, I think, those independent black-led immigration movements and the, the colonization movement, which most abolitionists, uh, black and white, were very critical of. Now, if you have friends like the colonizationists, you don't really need too many enemies, but the the... <laughs> The abolition movement in the North does have a lot of enemies. Uh, you, you talk about the, the violent response that, that white and black abolitionists get uh, in the North. They, they, they don't get a reaction in the South because they're not allowed to be there. They're, they're summarily removed or they leave themselves uh, for the most part. But uh, you know, the, the, the murder of Lovejoy is the most obvious example, but there are, there are plenty of mob violence examples you cite where abolitionists in the North are... are brutally attacked and what that makes me wonder is if, if you have a sense of how 
uh, how the numbers shake out. Again, mm-hmm. traditional history tends to portray the abolition movement as a fringe movement, mm-hmm. and you argue that it's much more of a mass movement and much more broadly based, not just a, a, an upper or middle class uh, sort of hobby of, of a few uh, people, but much broader mm-hmm. than that. Yet there's, if you want to form a mob, you get anti-abolitionists. You get get thousands of people in the street. So how large, I'm not asking you to guess a percentage necessarily, but but what percent, mm-hmm. no, there I said percentage, what was the chance of a northern vision of a, a, a multiracial society as of, say, 1830? Was it just Garrison and a few people who believed that could ever come about? Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, you, they began with, with fairly small numbers. Um, <laughs> when Garrison began printing The Liberator in 1831, he had 500 subscribers, out of which 450 were African-American. So, uh, you know, abolition right from the start was, was popular amongst blacks, but it was not a mainstream movement in the North. And initially, yes, they met with a lot of mob violence uh, in the North, uh, because they were seen as threatening the union with southern slaveholders. Uh, so many of the mobs that attacked them were actually led by what one historian has called gentlemen of property and standing. Uh, they were Democratic Party politicians. Um, they were um, sometimes colonizationists, um, sometimes part of the, the business elite, merchants who had southern ties, especially um, you know, those who, who shipped cotton or who, um, you know, were textile magnates, uh, all these uh, sort of very mainstream elements in the North were very anti-abolitionist. They were seen as, as, as threatening um, the Union. Um, and um, you also had, of course, mobs that were very racist and that questioned both the interracial nature of the movement and the fact that these uh, abolitionist movements were seen as, quote, promiscuous in their terms, uh, meetings that included men and women, blacks and whites. Uh, so there was a lot of um, anti-abolitionist feeling in the North. But what's interesting is that by the end of the 1830s, what one sees is that these attacks on abolitionists, on their press, as uh, in Lovejoy's case, or as the gag rule in Congress to sort of gag abolitionist petitions or the burning of abolitionist literature uh, in in the South, uh, as in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, All this evokes a reaction in the North um, that actually gains abolitionists some sympathy. Uh, Many, many Northerners uh, start identifying uh, the cause of abolition with that of free speech and civil liberties. And, uh, in fact, um, Abraham Lincoln's, one of his first speeches um, on this issue um, as a state politician in Illinois was to kind of decry this this sort of mob attack on mm-hmm. abolitionists, even though he was not an abolitionist and thought that the abolition movement did sort of uh, challenge both the Constitution and the Union. Um, so you can see many sort of moderate anti-slavery people in the North um, being gradually converted to abolitionism so that by the end of the decade, this decade of furious mob attacks on abolitionists, um, you have um, 
nearly 200,000 members of abolitionist societies, uh, particularly in areas, uh, uh, you know, that uh, in the north, which are very influenced by um, the sort of um, uh, religious revival, the rise of reform movements, New mm-hmm. England, um, uh, sections of Ohio, uh, the Upper North, uh, you can really see the spread of abolitionism in these areas. So increasingly, uh, even though abolitionists remain a minority, you have a lot of people joining the abolitionist societies. Besides people who are joining these societies, you have others who are signing abolitionist petitions. Um, so there are a lot of what I call fellow travelers of the abolition movement who may not join a society but may sign a petition against the annexation of Texas or for the abolition of the slave trade in the District of Columbia, uh, you know, other issues. Um, and you can see this spread in the 1840s and 50s in the North. And this is why I think the abolitionists were more than a fringe movement by the 40s and 50s. They're fairly influential in both, um, you know, the cultural, the literary scene, and in politics, too. Uh, the rise of the Liberty Party forces uh, many northern politicians to pay attention to the issue of slavery, um, particularly the extension of slavery. And um, you have, you know, prominent intellectuals, the transcendentalists, uh, people like Emerson, Thoreau, etc., coming over to the anti-slavery side. So slowly, I think, abolition, or at least anti-slavery sentiment, gains traction in the North. And that, I think, is extremely important, because one cannot explain the rise of the Republican Party uh, and the rise of Lincoln without understanding the sort of groundwork that had been laid by the abolitionist movement before that. One of the things that that is striking about that is that... uh there were many abolitionists, Garrison most prominently, who opposed participation in politics at all. But we're going to take another short break and come back uh, talking today with our guest, Manisha Sinha, author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Manisha Sinha, author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Uh, many listeners will be familiar with the classic Monty Python movie, Life of Brian, in which in one scene we see rebels against the Roman Empire, the People's Front of Judea, uh, discussing their arch enemies, who turn out not to be the Romans, but the Judean People's Front, uh, making fun of the fact that in any movement, there's always splintering, there's always uh, arguing with the people closest to you instead of keeping your eye on the real uh, the real object. And Manisha, we left off, I briefly mentioned how William Lloyd Garrison was did not participate in politics, did not think voting was the way to go to participate in a system that was inherently wrong, whereas other abolitionists uh, were very political, and the movement endured schisms over issues like that, and especially over the role of women. Could you talk a little bit about how the movement uh, sometimes divided against itself? Yes, you know, uh, a lot of historians actually wrote about these different um, sort of divisions within the abolition movement, and many of them took sides with Hmm. with the people that they were (laughs) writing about. Uh, So you had a whole group of historians who felt that the political abolitionists, the evangelicals, had right on their side, uh, others who thought uh, that Garrison was right. Uh, and, and yes, the abolitionist movement did divide quite a bit over ideology and tactics. So there was a division over entering politics, uh, Garrison, um, by uh, especially after uh, Prig versus Pennsylvania upheld uh, the federal fugitive slave laws and, and basically declared all uh, attempts by northern states to grant um, due process of law to suspected fugitives unconstitutional, Garrison becomes uh, extremely critical of, uh, in his eyes, the slaveholding republic uh, and the constitution that protects slavery. So he refuses uh, to join in in politics. He also uh, condemns the use of force by the state because he had seen many times in uh, mob action against abolition, he had seen how the state had used its repressive powers not to protect abolitionists many times, but to actually condone actions being taken against them. Um, So he becomes, you know, a follower of a doctrine known as non-resistance, which is extreme pacifism, you know, he doesn't want um, the state to use force in any circumstances. He comes out against capital punishment. At that time, at that early date, he thinks that capital punishment is being applied in a racially differential manner in the United States. Um, so he's quite radical in, in all his ideas. And he supports, of course, women's rights and is very critical of organized religion and the church at a time when um, most people um, were, uh, took uh, the Bible and took their churches very seriously. Um, so he's very, very radical. He's a political, religious radical who supports women's rights. And this does create a schism in the movement. And you have what I think is kind of a tripartite schism between 
the Garrisonians and the Evangelicals who are more conservative on the women's rights question, and the political abolitionists who feel that the movement, in order to affect change, must become a political movement. Um, that the only way to galvanize the North uh, behind uh, the anti-slavery cause was to, to enter politics. And for Garrison, the realm of politics was the, the realm of compromise and an attainted realm. Uh, but Garrison's idea was not to say that this is not what abolitionists should do. He, his idea was that we should all be abolitionists and follow whatever tactics we think is important uh, to further the cause. Now, of course, that Big Ten philosophy did not work because uh, most of the political abolitionists were very keen to convert the American anti-slavery society into a political party, and, and Garrison was against that. He wanted that association to last. And he wanted women to have both voting rights and office-holding positions. So you get this, it's ironic, because here's Garrison fighting for the right of women to vote within the abolition movement, but he's actually against voting for what he sees as pro-slavery parties, parties that compromise over the question of slavery. Now, this doesn't mean that Garrison is apolitical, um, because uh, when you do have the rise of free soilism uh, and the Republican Party, um, he is critical of uh, the fact that some of their measures are not, you know, they don't meet up to the abolitionist standard. They're only against the non-extension of slavery and not for the abolition of slavery. At the same time, He's very supportive of them. So if you look at the liberator from that time, he is reprinting speeches of John Quincy Adams opposing the gag rule. He is also commending Whigs and Democrats that break with their party over the issue of slavery. And he is, you know, commenting very favorably sometimes on the Free Soil Party and the Republican Party. So he's not apolitical, but he does have this very radical of non-participation in a, a country or a constitution that is tainted by slavery. And, of course, his most radical action is to, to actually burn a copy of the United States Constitution, uh, the Fugitive Slave Law, and a decision of a federal commissioner rendering a fugitive slave, Anthony Burns, from Boston back to Virginia. So... He, he does take this sort of radical political stance, but in my book, I argue that these divisions between the Garrisonians and the political abolitionists, between those who um, were more evangelically inclined and the Garrisonians, were not so much a symptom of weakness, but it was a symptom of the growth and the success mm. of the movement, because as it became bigger and as it incorporated more people, you had... Uh, different segments of the movement advocating for different things and different tactics. So I really saw it more as a sign of vitality within the movement. Um, and it is interesting that during the Civil War, you know, all these divisions are virtually forgotten. Uh, they all come together uh, to, you know, fight for emancipation and after emancipation uh, for black rights. Uh, and I found that interesting. Mm -hmm. it, it's sort of the ultimate irony. There's a series of ironies. The ultimate one being that the 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 act of secession is the thing that finally puts abolitionism and the Constitution and the Union all on the same side. And and uh, radicals and moderate anti-slavery people can all get get together. But that 
the the irony of that is that every success or, or apparent success of pro-slavery forces just has uh, an even stronger reaction. We already talked about uh, anti-abolition mob violence uh, boosting abolitionism in the North, and you you give also the example of how the Fugitive Slave Act uh, in 1850, the enforcement of this act actually galvanizes people uh, in the North to to become abolitionists or uh, even to join Garrison in rejecting the entire Constitution if, if it contains something, if it supports something as uh, apparently evil as that. Could you talk about how, how the Fugitive Slave Act affected things? Yes, that's a, that's a good question, too, because, in fact, uh, after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act and, and also the, the conflict in Kansas and then later on the Dred Scott decision, what you see is that, you know, the, the schisms uh, within the movement seem to matter less and less. So when you have cases of individual fugitive slaves where um, these people are being arrested and being rendered back to the South, you do have the abolition movement and the different factions of it coming together and even cooperating with anti-slavery politicians, uh, free soilers, and later on, um, you know, lawyers and politicians within the Republican Party to act on behalf of these fugitive slaves. And, and this is the one point that I try to make throughout the book, and I think the one sort of uh, intervention that the book makes is to to not view the abolition movement as mainly one of, sort of middle-class northern whites, but exactly. to really see how slave resistance and how fugitive slaves, for instance, really galvanize the movement, radicalize it, uh, and how they uh, really lay at the heart of the movement right from the start. Uh, so that's one big point that I try to trace in the book right from the revolutionary era you know, when slaves are suing for freedom and voting with their feet for freedom, right down to the Civil War, uh, when increasingly they sort of begin the process of emancipation by simply defecting uh, to Union you, Army lines in large numbers. So, you also make um, a, I'd say you make a point about Haiti, uh, the revolution there being extremely significant right. mm-hmm. in, in the American abolition movement. Yes, you know, um, the the caricature, again, is that Garrison and a lot of people uh, uh, in the abolition movement were extreme pacifists and that they were (laughs) wary of or even condemned slave rebellion. And I found just the opposite to be true. They they sort of lauded the Haitian Revolution as an abolition movement, uh, as an abolitionist revolution, as one that had actually led to the immediate abolition of slavery, that there was no gradualism involved here. Uh, as in the case of British emancipation in the West Indies or in the northern states uh, where you had these gradual emancipation laws um, that abolitionists many times had to fight to implement and to make sure that, you know, northern slaveholders did not circumvent these laws. So uh, they did see the Haitian Revolution as, as an important part of their movement, and many of them, both black and white, defended it, including Garrison who's a pacifist in principle. So I found this fascinating. Uh, I didn't find this sudden turn um, towards violence and self-defense, whether it is resisting the fugitive slave law or in the Kansas Wars uh, or in lording John Brown um, in the 1850s, but that you can see this, uh, this sort of thread within the abolitionist movement where many abolitionists who were in principle committed to pacifism, uh, defended slave rebellions, um, which is, of course, what the Haitian Revolution 
uh, was, it began as a massive uh, slave rebellion. Uh, and I found that with Garrison in particular, he defends the Haitian Revolution. He also defends Nat Turner's rebellion. He's one mm-hmm. of two editors uh, throughout the United States who actually defends uh, Nat Turner as a freedom fighter uh, while he's being sort of condemned uh, as a criminal and as a murderer in 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 um, newspapers north and south. So we have only a few minutes left. Uh, your epilogue, you mentioned that abolitionists are perhaps one reason they don't have the the, the high historical reputation that, that their work seems to earn uh, is that they're never satisfied. Uh, slavery ends, and then the next question is, do they continue to fight for equal rights for all races, or do they uh, take up the fight for equal rights uh, for gender? And and they, they divide over that issue, and, and there's never a final victory. No, there isn't. And if you look at what happens with the overthrow of Reconstruction, you know, uh, many abolitionists who lived that long, and many didn't, many died before <laughs> Reconstruction was overthrown, but those who did really did see this as an ongoing struggle. Um, they did not, you know, you don't have that note of triumphalism in, in abolitionist memoirs or abolitionist writings from that time. They are constantly worried about what is happening. In fact, one of Garrison's, sort of one of his dying uh, concerns is, in fact, the sort of new violence against African-Americans and freed people in the South, as it is, of course, for Frederick Douglass, who lived long enough to see all that uh, had been won, uh, both in terms of uh, emancipation and black citizenship and voting, you know, virtually overthrown uh, in the South. Um, So I, I think they are, you know, they're the quintessential activists. Um, they continue to fight uh for um, their goals, which they see as, as, as something that is, you know, it's nothing that progresses in a linear fashion. It is always contested. Uh, and I think that is one of the reasons why they didn't have a great stock in American history, because usually the traditional narratives of American history always portrayed the progress of freedom as, as sort of relentless and linear and progressive with, with just people who had been left out simply incorporated, and what we missed out on was all the struggles, all the times when things went backwards instead of going forwards, and on all the contestation, and I think abolitionists are sort of aware of that, and in the uh, end, you would say that they were, both the Garrisonians and the political abolitionists like Douglas were right, I mean, the only way you could get rid of slavery was in fact through political action, but, but Garrison was right in saying that unless you really changed the hearts and minds of people over this issue, these victories, these political victories, even constitutional amendments, would be fleeting. And and uh, it's, on that note, we have to come to an end. We're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, but listeners, you will want to follow this story. The book is The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. The author, Manisha Sinha, has been our guest tonight. Manisha, it is a real pleasure talking with you about this book. I really enjoyed reading it. Hope our listeners will do the same. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.